0: You guys may be seated. I want to take a moment to welcome uh, the parents, or family weekend uh, down at Oregon State. It's always a joy to have you guys with us. Um, I also love the beauty of God's providence and the fact as we planned for this fall, um, we didn't put into mind what was going on in the life of Oregon State um, as we planned our series through 1 Peter. And so it's fun that it just happens to be that on the weekend, um, a family weekend, that we get to spend our time talking about um, the relationship of the husband and wife. If you guys haven't turned there, please turn to 1 Peter, where we're going to be in the first uh, seven chapters. I mean, seven verses. (laughs) We don't even have seven chapters, so that would be unfortunate. First seven verses of chapter three. I want to start with the question. How do you have a healthy relationship with your spouse? Or better yet, do you feel like it's even possible to have a healthy relationship with your spouse? I mean, if we look at magazine articles, if we look at the news, if we watch TV or watch movies, We're saturated with unhealthy marriage after unhealthy marriage. It seems like couples are either on the verge of divorce or have already been divorced. It's seeing marriages end in infidelity and unmanageable differences or simply this idea of falling out of love. You see, for many, it seems much easier to throw in the towel and just start over than it is to actually live by the words and the vow till death do us part. A family law firm down in San Diego took 115 different studies um, on divorce and compiled them into facts and rates for 2018. And they discovered that in America, every 13 seconds, there's one divorce. That means 277 an hour i mean 6646 a day over 46000 a week and over 2.4 million a year so i ask again is it possible to have a healthy marriage though divorce runs rampant and really destroys everything in its path there are many couples who are striving to actually have a healthy marriage who are striving to glorify God in the way they live with their spouse. I mean, if you simply go on Amazon and look in that self-help section under marriage, you'll find 40,000 different titles. And today, we look at what I believe is arguably the best book on marriage, the Bible, because it is the only book that contains the word of God. God. It says is useful for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We look at the author and creator of humanity. The one who established the covenant of marriage. So what does the Bible have to say about marriage? Or even more so as we look at 1 Peter today. What does Peter have to say to these sojourners and strangers who are in exile, striving to live for God and for one another. If I could boil it down to just one main theme that we see throughout this section is it's a call from Peter for wives and husbands to live in such a way that brings honor to God and to each other. And really, as, as we head down these seven verses, we see kind of three main questions that Peter ends up answering. The first in verses one and two is, "Why are wives to submit? Why are they called to do that? Two is which adornment matters in the grand scheme of life, looking at verses three through six, and then lastly, he ends with the husband and says, how are husbands to treat their wives? So let's begin with that first question that Peter really addresses. Why are wives to submit? You know, I think it's important before we we walk through these first two verses is to think about and to recognize what is going on in this time, in this history, in the Greco-Roman society. Because the reality is the role of the man and the woman 2,000 years ago looks very different than it does today. Plutarch, a guy that we've heard from before, a Greco-Roman philosopher, when addressing wives said this, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own the gods are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, it is proper for the wife to recognize only those gods whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults or strange superstitions. You see, in the Greco-Roman society, wives, you were not to have your own friends. The only friends you could have were by extension of your husband. And better yet, you were called to just simply worship the god that your husband worships. So as we step into today's text, it is important to note that first century wives and first century women would be reading this in an affirming and empowering reality rather than viewing it as enslaving or oppressive, which usually the word submission gets attached to. This was liberating for them, not oppressive. And these verses actually call to a social transformation that is rooted in the gospel and is lived out in the Christian society. So what does Peter say to these women? Verse 1 and 2, he says, Likewise, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct. So, what's he calling him to? First, he says likewise. And likewise is really drawing them back to chapter two and the, re- the reality of what your relationship ought to look like to those in authority. He's ultimately saying, Why is there to submit? Just as we said, citizens are to submit to the government, and slaves or servants are to submit to their master. It's this voluntary aspect. As Edmund Clowney puts it, he says, The Christian who follows Jesus does not grasp for privilege. He or she is already privileged beyond imagination. The Christian seeks rather opportunities to imitate Christ in willing subjection to service. And he goes on. Peter says, be subject to your own husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. Whether they're good or bad, kind or unkind, cute, or kind of lost that cuteness over the years, he says, submit. Yet what's important to notice is it's a wife's calling to submit to the husband, not men, but one's husband. It's not wiser to submit to all men in society, which I think we can often attribute this idea to, but rather to the head of the household. And what's interesting is Peter's exhortation to to subject oneself to the husband, to submit, is pretty ambiguous in the grand scheme of things. He doesn't now walk through 15 different ways in which submission looks. You see, in a sense, he leaves the specifics to the husband and the wife to navigate and walk through, to answer that question of what does submission look like within our home. And we see in this passage that Peter's actually primarily addressing women that are married to non-believers, Christian women who, who live with a husband that does not know the Lord. We see this from the language he uses of even if some do not obey the word, and then this idea that they may be one. You see, he's calling wives' conduct to be respectful and pure, to have the gospel ultimately flow through their actions. But it begs the question of why. Why is this submission so important to Peter that he places it within the household codes? See, Peter has a glorious vision for this call to submit. Because it's for the sake of the gospel. You see, Peter's primary concern is the salvation of, Of the husband. For the sake of the church, for the sake of Christ, submit, so that they, your husbands, may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. And again, this idea of one without a word is not saying that wives cannot speak in the household, nor is it saying that they should not proclaim the gospel at all using words. Because we've already seen in chapter one of 1 Peter that he says, We have been born again, not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. You see, the word is essential. So what is he saying without a word? He's addressing a specific situation in which the wife really no longer has been able to talk to her husband about the Lord because of the dynamic of relationship, or maybe he feels like she said it too much. And so therefore he urges the woman not to give up hope but to rather realize that she still has a weapon to play. And that's the powerful testimony of her life lived, through her conduct. Because through this respectful and pure behavior, she preaches the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And for the wife, Christ is that perfect example of true God-honoring submission. See, as a Christian woman, she is who she is in Christ because Christ submitted himself. You see, Christ lived a life of submission. 47 times in the book of John, Jesus said he is under God's orders. He submitted himself to the will of the Lord in in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he said, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus subjected and submitted himself to the point of death on a cross for you and for me. On behalf of malicious rebels, Jesus submitted himself. We can think of the worst person possible. That is us. And Jesus submitted himself for our sake. Philippians 2 says, have this mind among you, which is yourselves in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant or a slave and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus submitted and subjected himself because for him we are worth it. For God so loved the world. He cares for us so much, desires our soul so much that he willingly endured the cross and thus defeated death. We have been made right, we have been purified through the blood of Christ and now can stand before our God. As Jesus sits at the right hand of God, this is the call he has on our life to submit in response. So why submit? It's ultimately a call to submit because of the freedom wives have in Christ and the desire to see their husband experience that same freedom. It's a submit so that your husband may come to have saving faith in Jesus. And if there were ever a reason to willingly submit, I can't think of a better one. And the reality is if your husband is a believer, it's a call to submit to still be a gospel presence and influence in his life every single day to honor God as you honor one another. And then Peter begins to kind of shift gears in the second section. As he goes from this external submission, they're now saying, okay, internally, what does it look like? How ought we to live? by addressing that question of which adornment matters. 3 through 6 says, Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be hidden in the person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Ultimately, he poses this question to the people What are you living for? Which do you care about more, the things that are of great worth to society or the things that are of great worth to God? The things that are of great worth to society is this this external beauty, the aesthetics, the braiding of hair, your jewelry, your clothing. And it's important to note, Peter isn't being legalistic here and saying like, hey, you can't wear any of those things because if we actually took that to the farthest extent, women should not wear anything because clothing in and of itself is an adornment. Rather, he's challenging the motivation behind our very lives. He's challenging the wives to think through, their pla- think through where they place their worth. Is it the external or the internal? Do you put your worth and identity in social constructs? Or do you put your worth and who you are in God? Because as Peter says, what is of great worth to God is your internal beauty. It seems to echo the words in 1 Samuel 16 that that ultimately God says to David. He says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so it's a call for women to adorn themselves with this imperishable, unfading reality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Because he said, this is what is precious to God. And I'm sure we all want to be precious to our Lord and Savior. And the beautiful thing is, he's actually calling you really to, to imitate Christ. Because Christ himself said that he is gentle and humble, and he calls all those that are heavy laden and burdened to come to him. He's calling us to imitate our Savior. And not only that, he says that that living for the internal actually brings you in step and in line with the women of old who have really led the way for us to the here and now. Holy women like Sarah. He's really saying if you want to see someone who is truly beautiful to God, look to Sarah. And if if you know the context of of where he points us, it feels rather odd Because he points us back to Genesis 18, where these two messengers come to Abraham and they tell Abraham, hey, in a year, you've been waiting a long time, but in a year, you are going to have this son of promise. And Sarah's in the tent, eavesdropping and and hearing, and she actually laughs when she hears that. This is her response. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I still have pleasure? Pleasure. You see, internal beauty is what's important to God. I mean, the reality is, Sarah is 90, and I'm assuming most of us in the room don't think of 90-year-olds and be like, yes, that is the essence of external beauty. Maybe we do, but we probably don't. Yet God's saying, hey, there's something way more significant in this passage that is beauty. And it's not, even, it's not in the laughing, but it's in the response she has of honoring Abraham. It's a sense of reverence and dignity she gave her husband even in the midst of old age as she called him Lord, this little L Lord. She ultimately respected Abraham's leadership. But we see that it was her hope in the Lord that made her willing to follow her husband. She submitted because she was confident that God would reward those who submit to him. And it is her hope in the Lord that ultimately we see pushes out fear. Peter calls the Christian woman rooted in the living hope of the gospel to wage war against the fears in their lives by defeating them in the hope that is in the promises of God. As we see Sarah's hope resting in that promise that God would provide the son. Yet in today's world, submission feels like a dirty word. Many of us have negative connotations with the word submission. And I believe many of us realistically don't have an accurate understanding of what submission actually means, according to the Bible. To hopefully help and and bring clarity to this distinction of roles, I want to look at this passage and kind of deduce what submission is not. Because sometimes the best way to understand what it is is to first knock out the things that it isn't. And I believe in this passage you see five different ways in which they make clear submission does not mean fill in the blank. Number one, submission does not mean the wife is inferior to the husband does not mean the wife is inferior. See, not only does this passage refute it, in verse seven, as he calls you co-heirs of the grace of God, but we actually see this throughout scripture, at the very foundation of man and woman in the garden. Man and woman were created as image bearers in the image of God. Or Galatians three, we see this idea that male or female, it does not matter to God because we are all one in Christ Jesus. Jesus. He's ultimately saying equality and worth are not solely tied to one's stature and exercise of authority. Number two, submission does not mean that the wife is a yes man. Submission does not mean that you simply agree with everything your husband says. Again, we have to acknowledge, Peter is addressing wives where they actually have differing beliefs than their husband's. They believe things that their husband does not. They have heard the gospel and responded to the gospel apart from her husband. It's a call to say, women, you can have your own thoughts, the own reality of your life lived out. Three, submission does not mean the wife avoids every effort to change her husband. And again, we see in this passage that the sole focus, Peter is emphasizing his wife, is, hey, submit to them, live in such a way that they may come to know Jesus. It's a desire to see the gospel actively and presently lived out in their spouse's life. It's a desire to see change for the sake of Christ. As Piper says, if you believe what the Bible says, you must conclude that submission, paradoxically, is sometimes a strategy for changing him. Number four, Submission does not mean it's his way or the highway. The wife does not not simply submit to bolster her husband's reputation or for his own pride and vanity, but rather the wife's submission, just as those that submit to the government, just as those that submit to their masters, is first and foremost submission to Jesus Christ. It is him that relativizes your relationship to your husband. We even see that in the difference between an all-caps Lord emphasizing God and this lowercase Lord emphasizing Sarah's husband. You see, you always place the will of God above the will of others. And number five, submission does not mean that the wife gets her strength through her husband. Verse five makes it clear that the holy woman gets her strength through the hope in God. We hope and we desire that as good husbands, you will strengthen and build up your wife. But it cannot be you and you alone that your wife finds strength. In. you cannot be the source. For you've been saved through Christ and Christ alone. Not your husband. Your faith and strength is in Christ and him alone. He is the fountain of overflowing water. And then Peter shifts and now addresses the husbands. And as you're looking, you're like, oh, the wives got six verses. Interesting. And the husbands got one. I mean, as we look at the context, and as most commentators say, the reality is he's addressing wives just as he addressed those under a rude, mean government and those under potentially grueling slave masters, as saying, hey, wives, you are the one that are in need of encouragement. You are the one that is in need of being able to live this out because you're living in a really hard situation. A really hard situation. You're experiencing potential oppression from authority. And so I want to spend time acknowledging that. And then as he shifts to husbands, he kind of gives this one short, curt verse of, hey, husbands, this is what you ought to do that actually makes this authority piece a beautiful, beautiful image. So ultimately, he addresses how our husbands to treat their wives. Verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. He, like the wife, begins with likewise, of pulling you back, ultimately, to this image of what Christ has done. Ultimately, saying, as you submit to Christ, live this out. Live with your wife in an understanding way, or as some take that, and in an according to knowledge. So what does this mean? He's emphasizing this idea of a knowledge of God and knowledge of Wife. For knowledge of God, its husbands are to live together with their wives, informed by the knowledge of God's will and what he demands them to do as the head of the household, as the husband. I mean, Paul calls husbands to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's also saying, you ought to know the role based on the word that you have to play and live that out. Honor them and cherish them with your own body. Understand scripture and lead out a scripture-saturated life. You're called to be the spiritual leader, so embrace it and cherish that role. Yet, in an understanding way, he's also pointing you to understanding your wife. Know your wife. Know her needs. Understand your wife. The reality is men and women are different. If you did not know that, that's your lesson. Men and women are different. And so it is our job as men to understand those differences and what makes her tick versus me tick and to strive to love her in the midst of that, to lead her in the midst of that. It's to strive to see this internal adornment just grown in her life and ultimately praising God for it. It's out of this understanding way that we will be ones that honor our wife because she is equal. Yet what's interesting is in this passage, he shifts from live with your wives to now show honor to the woman. And Peter actually switches that verbiage to actually expand one's understanding of who you are to show honor to as the man. He actually broadens out this perspective and calls husbands to honor all women. And he uses this weaker vessel language, which some people hate. But the reality is, it's it's not saying, hey, as women, you have a weak faith, or you have weaker emotions, or a weaker mind. Rather, he's looking at their biology and simply saying, based on sheer strength, you are the weaker vessel. I'm sure there are women that are stronger than men out there, but he's taking it to look at the overarching picture and to say, we need to honor them and love them and really treasure them, but then also protect them. I mean, there's a a reason professional sports, or the overwhelming majority of them, are not co-ed. I mean, just imagine if the NBA and WNBA were combined together, or the MLB and the professional softball leagues, Or if UFC no longer had any kind of distinction for gender. Like we understand that there's a difference. And he's saying, live in light of that difference and actually honor them in the midst of it. Honor them because of it. It's a call to show honor for the husband, not a call to enforce submission. I love Karen Joby's words in this. She says, when submission of the wife becomes the central issue, the image of Christian marriage has already been distorted. You see, he calls wives to submit, but he doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. But rather, he calls them to show honor. And this idea of honor is actually greater than respect. It literally means preciousness. The husbands show their wives this preciousness because they are equal. They are co heirs with him in Christ. <clears throat> they are united in Christ, one in Christ, as we saw in Galatians 3. The grace the husband has experienced is the grace that the woman has experienced. And therefore, as followers of Christ, no one is better or worse. They simply are in Christ. And lastly, Peter emphasizes that honoring your wife is somehow attached to your prayer life. That a husband's prayers are actually hindered if he fails to honor his wife. By no means do we want to live in a world as a husband where God doesn't hear my prayers because of how I'm treating my wife. So, back to that initial question we asked How do you have a healthy relationship with your spouse? You honor God and each other by embracing the role that Christ has given each of you. So for the husband, lead your wife, and by and large, lead your family. And that begins by knowing your wife. Know everything that is relevant to her. Continue to study her. She ought to be your favorite subject. Study her response to you and study your responses to her. Know your wife's communication style. Continually date your wife. It's not a once you wooed her into marrying, you're good, and you're like, yeah, okay, so like every year our marriage comes up, that's our date night. No, the reality is we should be doing it often, okay? And the beauty is we got a whole bunch of costumes here that would love to make some extra cash, and so reach out to them to watch your kids so that you can go on a date with your wife. Know your wife. You know, it's not an I, I said I love you at the altar and I don't do it again, but it's regular speaking that into your wife's life and talk to her. Know how she feels. Constantly hear from her and care about her opinions. It's ultimately the navigating through when does she just want me to listen and when does she want me to actually give advice. And I can tell you more often than not, it's just listen. (laughs) Tuck that away. It's ultimately treating her as your equal in Christ. It's cherishing her as Christ cherishes you. And husbands, know the word. You are the spiritual head of your household. Know the word that you may lead your wife and your family according to that word. And know what the word says about your role as a husband, as a father, and as a man. And strive to live that every single day for the glory of God and to honor your spouse. And lastly, husbands, pray with your wives. You see, prayer is a wonderful barometer of your marriage. It's a great gauge to figure out where you're at and what you're processing through. Because the reality is you invite invite each other into the intimate relationship with God. You get to see their burdens, their desires, their joys, and then pray in light of that. In our household, not too long ago, I kind of recognized that some of these categories I I was failing in. Um, and I was encouraged and challenged to read a book called Family Worship. Super short, not even a book. It's a book, it's 60 pages. But in it, he talks about this idea of read scripture together, sing together, and pray together. And so not too long ago, we started trying to implement that into our household. And I can tell you how fun and encouraging it's been within our family life. Ivy's only 17 months old, so she doesn't really grasp anything that's going on. Um, and trying to figure out a song that works for her is very difficult, but we figured out we can sing um, This is lot Light of Mine. And as a 17-month-old, as we're sitting around the dinner table, as dinner starts to close, she holds up her finger, like, This is lot Light of Mine. She wants it, you know, and then she'll blow it out and no. But the reality is it's, it's, she's like, No, we're not letting that basket come, okay? But the beauty is, from a young age, we're getting to see that modeled in her life but then also getting the opportunity to pray with your wife in the times I can dare tell you I fail at praying with Anna more often than I should. But it's those moments of prayer, even at the, after the mealtime, you get to see, hey, this is what is on my wife's heart. This is what she longs for. This is what she rejoices in. This is what burdens her. And as you get to know that, you get to honor her and love her well in that way. See, and the beautiful thing is if you strive to understand your wife, and and submit yourself to the gospel, and faithfully pray together, then ultimately your wife's submission becomes a glorious thing in which she can actually rejoice in a Christ-filled experience versus in a burdensome toil. And for the wise, he calls her to honor her husband through submitting to him. And that means, to begin, husbands and wives need to have that conversation. What does that look like? Again, he doesn't completely lay it out. We see some of the things that he makes sure it's not, but doesn't completely lay out what submission is. And so husbands and wives engage in that conversation. And if you're a strong-willed woman, he's also saying, do not walk over your husband, but give him that opportunity to, to lead and to grow in his leadership. Or if you're not strong-willed, don't let your husband walk all over you. But rather, when he is not leading in a way that honors you or honors God, it's, it's your responsibility to acknowledge that, to voice that, so that you can actually willfully submit to him. And as you navigate through what submission is, just as the husband is called to know the word, we are called to go back to the word and to understand, okay, what does submission say about, or what does the word say about submission and how do we live that out? He's calling wives to live in such a way that reflects the gospel, to place your hope in the gospel. Is gospel fluency present in your actions? Are you striving for and praying to grow in respect of your husband? Or more generally, are you praying for your husband? Are you praying for his leadership skills, for his caring of your home? Are you striving for and praying to grow in gentleness and quietness within your own soul? See a desire to continually point your husband back to the gospel? And I acknowledge that many of us in this room don't really fit into either of those categories. Husband and wife, that doesn't really fit. And though Peter doesn't directly address you, I wholeheartedly believe that this message is applicable for you and where you're at in the season as those that are single or those that are dating, those that are engaged. You see, for women in general, looking at this adornment piece, he's really emphasizing, is more effort put into your physical appearance or your spiritual growth? And see, though he's speaking to wives, he's not saying, hey, if you're not a wife yet, just wait until you become a wife and then focus on the internal. But no, he's saying this should be the life of a woman that loves the Lord. Internal adornment is the life of a Christian. See, so are, you, are you living to be beautiful as the world prescribes it or as God prescribes it? Again, he's not saying never get dressed up never wear makeup, never do anything with your hair, put any jewelry on, but rather he's saying you care more about what your heart looks like or what your face looks like. For God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one that will judge all people, cares about your heart and not what you're wearing. Yet I encourage you also to seek out other women in your life that can speak Truth and encourage you in this internal adornment process. Foster relationships that help you cultivate what's going on inside the heart. The heart work is hard work, and so find like minded women to join you in that effort. I encourage you, women here, to get involved in the women's ministry of what's going on in the life of the branch. Alicia Carlson has done a great job at cultivating relationships and seeing relationships cultivated that really focus on the heart, of doing the heart work and looking, what does it mean to be a woman of God and rallying around one another in community? (laughs) Because the world outside of the church has a very different idea of what it means to be beautiful in this society. And so we need to rally around one another as women in the gospel Saying, what does the gospel, what does Jesus have to say about true beauty? And for men in general, in this room, it's a call to treat women as your equal. We are one in Christ. We are heirs with them, sons and daughters of God. They're not an object of lust, but a sister in Christ and a daughter of God. Ultimately, this is the time in which you prepare yourself to be the kind of husband that honors your wife, that knows your wife. And so it's thinking, how do I treat women now in making changes that align yourself to the gospel? And men, as I said to the husbands, grow in your knowledge of the word. Understand what it means to be a man of God. Understand what it means to be a husband rooted in Scripture. And if you grow in your understanding of that now, it'll do wonders for you in the future. Because not only will you bless your wife, but you'll bless your family, and you'll bless those that come in contact with your family. See, may we be a people who strive to develop and cultivate healthy marriages. Healthy marriages are a gospel testimony for they point to Christ and his love for the church. May our community be one in which our husbands and wives live in such a way that we bring glory to God and truly honor each other. Let's pray.